Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Last Lord's Day, we took up the first two verses of chapter 12. And I reminded you that there is a great divide here at the end of chapter 11 with the word Amen as the Apostle ends 11 chapters describing and reviewing the mercies of God in our salvation. And then he takes up how we ought to react and respond to having heard the mercies of God presented to us. And so then we have five chapters of our practical duties. It's a common method of the apostles. It's a method that ought to be followed in preaching. Establish the foundation on what God has done and then exhort from that what we ought to do in return to Him. And the first two verses were a mandate for our Christian lives. They're wonderful verses. Children ought to be taught these two verses. They ought to know them from memory. They ought to understand their component parts, and they ought to keep them. It's a wonderful life verse. If you take two of them together, life verses of Romans 12, 1 and 2, I'm thankful that some of you have known them from memory or most of your lives. I'm thankful that some of you are teaching them to your children this past week. It is a mandate, meaning that it is a short, concise description of how we ought to live in light of God saving us. Amen. They are general verses in that they are describing an overall message of how we ought to live, and the apostle then is going to take up specific details. And you've read Romans 12 a couple times in preparation for these services, so you know that chapter 12 has many practical duties listed in it that make up the perfect and holy and acceptable will of God. And we start with a section this morning, verses 3 through 8, that cover gifts in the early church in particular and how we ought to relate to one another in fulfilling the roles that God has given us. And we're going to stay with that theme throughout the day, the Lord being with us. God has saved us and He's called us and He wants us to abide in the calling wherein He called us. And He wants us to be faithful to that calling, not to change it, not to resent it, not to regret it, but to embrace it and to keep the commandments of God pertaining to it. And we're going to consider that as we go forward today in the first service and in our second assembly. Let me read to you these six verses down through verse 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing, According to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth, on teaching, or he that exhorteth, on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth, with diligence. He that showeth mercy, 
with cheerfulness. Amen and amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome and to all churches successive to that church in the history of the world, including us today. For I say through the grace given unto me, having declared the mandate for general Christian living, Paul's now going to present the details, and he starts out by reminding us that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that God had given great grace to him. When an apostle speaks, we ought to listen, and when the apostle Paul speaks, we ought to doubly listen, because he was the greatest of the apostles in certain regards, and he was the apostle of the Gentiles, which means he was our apostle. We should listen attentively. The grace given to Paul by God was exceptional. And that grace that was bestowed upon him was not in vain, but he labored more abundantly than they all. The gift that God gave Paul of being an apostle and the gift God gave Paul of being an apostle of the Gentiles was indeed great. And he's referring to that right here. His gift as an apostle with authority from the Lord Jesus Christ to tell us and to tell gifted offices in the New Testament church of this time how they ought to conduct themselves because he had an office higher than any of them. And so he appeals to that fact and he's going to argue from that. He's not going to make mention of the gift of apostleship. He's the apostle addressing prophets all the way down to those that might have had the gift of showing mercy, which would be quite a small gift in in comparison to the gift of being an apostle. But he's arguing first off from his own office and the grace that was given to him. He's going to refer to that grace in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. So he's going to refer to the fact that every gift and every office that a man had in the church was by the grace of God. But he starts out with the fact, I have an office myself. The, The wonderful thing about an apostle is every gift that you can read about in the New Testament rolled up to them. They had every one of the gifts. They had every one of the offices. You say, well, what about being a deacon? I ask you, who do you think did the work and office of a deacon before there were deacons? Who was the money given to and who made the distribution for the daily ministration of the widow's tables? The apostles did. It tells us that very plainly in Acts chapters 4 and 5. The doing of miracles, the speaking in tongues. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And do you know what church he said that to? A church that was obsessed with speaking in tongues. And so Paul starts off by saying, For I say, through the grace given unto me, through my apostolic office, I have some things to start out with about how we fulfill the will of God, which is our reasonable service for His salvation of us. And I want to start at the top and deal with the officers in your church. And so he deals with the officers being the highest officer of the New Testament kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. More could be said about that. Do you know that we could spend the rest of this sermon talking about the greatness of Paul's gift? Do you know that we could deal with those words right there, for I say, through the grace given unto me, and spend the next hour looking through the pages of Scripture, and there's plenty, one hour would not exhaust the material about the Apostle Paul, but I'm not doing that. We're moving forward because I want to get the lesson of all six verses by the grace of God. If anyone had a right to boast, 
or glory in gifts, deeds, or successes, it would have been the Apostle Paul. If anyone had any right to think a little highly of himself, it would have been the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul could say in one breath, I am not less than the chiefest of the apostles. In another breath, he could say, I am less than the least of all saints. Is that combination precious to you? That's the apostle. You know, he had an office that God had given him, and he wasn't going to undermine that office or understate that office. He said, I magnify mine office, and I magnify the grace that was given to me by having used it more abundantly than others. But overall, considering I'm the chiefest of sinners by the way I persecuted the church, and I am less than the least of all saints. And he gives us a a wonderful example of an imperfect man showing considerable humility. The most important passage or cross-reference to Romans 12, 3 through 8, is easily 1 Corinthians 12. I would have enjoyed having you read 1 Corinthians 12 every day last week in preparation for today, because if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, most of this will fall into place, and you'll understand the terminology and words here in Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is an amplified explanation and cross-reference for these six verses. And it took the apostle a whole chapter there to cover the material necessary, and he elaborated on it because the gifts of the Holy Spirit caused the most trouble at the church at Corinth. And we shouldn't blame the Holy Spirit, nor should we blame the gifts. We have to blame the recipients for getting all out of sorts. They were proud and puffed up in the gifts they had. They were envious about the gifts they didn't have. They fought and strove and broke into party factions. And the apostle had to deal with them chapter after chapter about their fighting and carnality and their misuse of the gifts. So chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians are about apostolic gifts that did not exist, many of which did not exist after 70 AD that the Corinthians abused. There is a temptation in the parts of God's people to be disappointed or to be frustrated when we come to a passage of Scripture that may not have a direct application to you. But the entire Bible was not written with a direct application to you. There are entire books without a direct application to you. They were written to another church under a different dispensation like the book of Leviticus. And when we think of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and the rules there for speaking in tongues, there is no direct application for you because you don't speak in tongues because the gift of tongues has been taken away. It tells you there that you ought to covet to prophesy. But no one, including your pastor, has the gift of prophecy. That gift was taken away in 1 Corinthians 13 when that which is perfect has come, and that's the Holy Scriptures. There's no need for a prophet anymore. Any prophet that would ever come up on the scenes is going to be inferior to the perfect prophecy of the Scriptures. And I want to comfort you with that. I'm going to make this as practical as I can today, and you're going to know by the end of the day, I hope a modicum of wisdom of your pastor in preaching this the way I believe it was intended by Paul to the church at Rome, and yet pulling out plenty for you to do when you go home, even if you're women and children. 
So please bear with me as I do what I believe I've been called to do, and that's to preach it the way that it was intended by the Holy Spirit and from the pen of Paul to the church at Rome, and we will draw as many aspects of it from us to us as possible. For I say, through the grace given unto me as an apostle, to every man that is among you, to every man that is among you, that's not every man. If it was every man, then that means it's ruling out women and children. We ought to give... We ought to let them leave the building for a while while I preach this passage just to the men that are here. This is every man that has a God-given gift and office by the Holy Spirit to serve the church. And that is gathered from reading the rest of this six, these six verses. Right. You have to come away with that understanding. First of all, look at the terminology. To every man that is among you. To be among the men means that it's not all the men. It's only some of the men. If you were to look through the New Testament and find this expression among you, you'll find that it is used in passages pertaining to ministers in other places, both by Paul and by Peter. Not every man is addressed, but every man among you. Paul knows the difference when he wants to address all men with something like this exhortation, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. When he wants to tell a whole church that they ought not to think more highly of themselves than they should, it's Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things. See, it's not look every man that is among you on his own things, but look every man on his own things. There is a difference. We trust every word of God. This is These are special men that were among the church at Rome, men, women, and children. Special men. He'll shortly address the fact that not all the members are equal, but they have different offices from God in verse 4. Look at the second half of verse 4. All members have not the same office. And this is continuing his contextual flow of addressing specific men in the church at Rome. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. He's referring to gifted men. Some have the gift of prophecy, some have the gift of ministry, some teaching, some exhortation, some giving, some ruling, some showing mercy. It's those that are the every man that are among you. Back there in verse 3, where we are. You know, he tells us very plainly in 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm so glad you read that last evening, so I don't have to flip there 20 times this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that God gave in the church first apostles. He tells us, and he ranks the gifts from the highest gift to the lowest gift. The highest gift was being an apostle. The lowest gift was speaking in tongues. And he says, are all teachers? There's there's an obvious answer to that question. Are all teachers? No. No. Are all prophets? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Those are only some among you. Those are, those are the every man that are among you. He began this section by appealing to his own gift of grace in, ver, in, the, in the first part of this verse, and he's continuing that same line of reasoning. I need to go on. There's, there's more things that can be said, and I can elaborate on all of those, and I can show you cross-references, but that is what is being said here by the apostle. For I say, through the grace given to me, my grace is the highest of anyone I'm going to address, To every man that is among you, I am now speaking to the top, the hierarchy of this church, its rulers, its leadership, its servants, its ministers, its prophets. I'm speaking to you that no man ought to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. 
and he is speaking to gifted men that had offices given in the New Testament. And those offices are going to be, some examples are going to be listed here in this context. The proper and right place to start with godliness is always at the top. So Paul started with church officers. He gives a mandate in verses 1 and 2, and then in six verses he addresses the leadership of that church that they had better be setting an example of, of humility. Because there's two things we want to note very quickly here. The first thing in fulfilling the will of God is humility. The second thing we want to notice is the humility is addressed and charged to church officers. Because it needs to start with them. It's always good to start at the top. That is why addressing you men is always the most important. Because if you men will go home and make changes in your lives, you will affect your wives and you will affect your children and you will affect your families. Because God has a hierarchy and we're going to be on this for the rest of this day. And if we disrupt that hierarchy or we violate that hierarchy, we lose. We lose as a race of men on planet earth and we lose as the kingdom of God. The Bible is so specific about doing things God's way result in profit. The reason that monogamy is God's choice is because it leads to better families than polygamy. Malachi chapter 2 tells us that monogamy is so that God can have a godly seed. Malachi 2.15, it says that God had the residue of the Spirit. He could have made Adam, Eve, and Rachel, and Sarah, and Rebecca. But God made Adam only Eve for a godly seed. And you know, men have corrupted that very quickly. You only read a few chapters, and you read about multiple wives taken by Lamech. And it corrupted God's way on the earth. And it corrupted the families that we're able to read about in the Bible. Faithful Abraham, as faithful as he was, he was foolish in marrying Hagar. And look at the trouble it cost him, it cost Sarah, it cost Hagar, it cost Ishmael, it cost Isaac, and it cost Israelites for a couple thousand years. And it's still costing today if you know anything about the descendants of Ishmael. And and the point being, we always want to do things God's way. Maintaining His roles, maintaining His positions for each of us, whether we're children, women, or men, and maintaining the rules that God gives for each of those. The proper and right place to start with godliness is at the top. So Paul started with church officers. Like a family, a church is seldom going to be better than its leaders in fulfilling its mandate. Remember in 1 Timothy 4.16, if Timothy did not take heed to himself and to the doctrine and continue in those two things, he wouldn't be saved, and neither would those that heard him be saved. And that's not saved to heaven, that's gospel salvation that we understand by rightly dividing the scriptures. So it needs to start at the top. Because if Timothy were to blow it in taking heed to his personal life or in taking heed to preaching correct doctrine, those hearing him would lose their gospel benefits of hearing and knowing the truth, either by his example or by his instruction. Solomon identified the confusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 of seeing servants on horses and princes walking. The reversal of roles. Get that. We're dealing with that today. 
I do not want any reversal of roles. I did not plan this in conjunction with my wife's presentation to the women 11 days ago, but it is a perfect compliment to what was done then, or hers was a perfect compliment to what I'm going to say today about the role of you women. The world around us is changing drastically, and the Christian world around us is changing drastically, and we must not change. We must look for the old paths and stand therein and stay in those old paths. I want to find today men that want to make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land because no man wants to do that anymore. And I speak as a generalization of 99.9% of the men have shirked the responsibilities and duties of their position and role and are not fulfilling their job according to the rules of Scripture. And we want to do that. There is plenty for all of you. But I understand 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 to have a great deal for the apostolic gifts of that era and Romans 12, verses 3 through 8 to have apostolic gifts of that era as well. And so some of these gifts have gone away. So they don't apply to any of us, including me. I wish I had the gift of prophecy, but I wish as a fool because I trust God's Word. The gift of prophecy means I wouldn't have to study. I could just get in this pulpit and with the faith given to me and according to the proportion of faith given to me and the grace given to me, I could unload on you inspired revelation from God. But instead, you have something better than hearing one man with his voice in a pulpit. You have the written revelation of God by which every man should be checked, including the Apostle Paul who had the gift of prophecy, wisdom, and knowledge like no other. How can church members fulfill their roles and practice unity if the leadership doesn't do so in a church? To maximize the profit of these six verses to all of you, I'm going to make as many indirect applications as I can. When I look at the showing of mercy and describe it as an apostolic gift, but when I say an apostolic gift, I don't mean it was an apostle that did it. I mean that it was a gift of the time of the apostles that went away in its formality when the apostles went away. Because the apostles went away, and the prophets went away, and the evangelists went away, and the speaking in tongues went away, and the giving of miracles and the healing gifts went away. They went away. But when I talk about showing of mercy, I want to draw from that. Anytime you show mercy, you should follow the principles that are taught here. And that's an indirect application of the Word of God. We read the book of Leviticus and we see its direct application is for the Levites, but we draw everything that we can from it for us as well. We look at Hebrews, the whole 13 chapters of Hebrews, and it's a warning to the Jews of the generation before the destruction of Jerusalem, and we see references being made to the day that was coming for them, but there's a day coming for us. While the direct application is for the Hebrews of Paul's generation... The indirect application is for us to be prepared for the second coming of the Lord. And when we make that secondary application, we want to be careful that we always understand how the Bible was intended because it's from that that we gather the true interpretation. But we also want to walk away with something that will convict us where that is possible. You know, there are certain things about leprosy, whole chapters in the book of Leviticus that have no value for us that I'm able to discern at all except that God cared for personal health and He believed in quarantines and and stuff and things like that, which is very, very indirect. 
And I know that sometimes you have a struggle reading those chapters, but you can just understand that God cares about details is one of the things you can get from it that is very indirect. God cares about details, and He wanted even leprosy to be dealt with exactly as He prescribed. The early church had many gifts and offices. I'm going to show you about 23 of them shortly. Of those gifts that remain, the ones that remain are rolled up into two offices, bishop and deacon. We don't believe there's any other office in the New Testament church because the New Testament church doesn't, the scriptures don't describe one. When Philippians chapter 1 and verse 2 addresses the Philippian church, it says with the bishops and deacons, the two offices. When 1 Timothy is written in chapter 3, there's two offices, bishop, deacon. There's no other offices described in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. There is no such thing as ruling elders in the New Testament. That is an invention of the Presbyterians copied by the Reformed Baptists that are too weak to stand on their own two legs. There is no such thing. There is bishops and there are deacons. And deacons are not elders. And bishops both rule and teach. There's no such thing as a teaching elder and ruling elders. They both do... They both... The one office does both works. Just like when the Bible says God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Those men do both works. They are shepherd, they shepherd God's flock and they teach. And bishops teach because they have to be apt to teach. You can't take a man who's a good businessman and make him an elder based on 1 Timothy chapter 3 because he has to be apt to teach. They're the teachers of God's kingdom. Oh, we'll just have to keep moving on here. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. When detailing the Christian life based on the mercies of God, humility comes first. And the first application of humility are to those that were gifted and had offices in the New Testament church. Gifts. As you can imagine, and as you can see by experience, and as you can see by reading 1 Corinthians, can create or be the basis or the source of a mess. Not that the gifts are wrong, but the way the church responded to them at Corinth. They produced ambition. There were men that wanted to be greater than the Apostle Paul. They wanted to put Paul down to elevate themselves. They wanted to take advantage of his apostolic labors for their own labors. And Paul describes this. He had to spend chapters in First and Second Corinthians, defending himself against men who wanted to oppose him. And they were constantly fighting and striving, and they all wanted to participate in every assembly. Everyone that spoke in tongues wanted to get up and babble in tongues in an assembly to convince others that they were spiritually minded. And they weren't. It was the lowest gift. And the apostle was very careful to explain, you ought to covet earnestly the best gifts. If you should covet earnestly the best gifts, you would never covet speaking in tongues. Paul said, covet to prophesy that you can exhort the church and edify the church and profit the church. Tongues didn't profit the church unless there was a man there to interpret those tongues in the language of the people that were present so that they could learn what was being said. Gifts and offices tend to corrupt men and they tend to create envy in the part of men that don't have those offices. No matter what a man's gift might be, he shouldn't be puffed up in pride about his gift, and he shouldn't be envious of the gifts of other men. A prophet shouldn't be proud of his gift in the New Testament, for he needed other prophets to fill out his message. 
You didn't read 1 Corinthians 14 last night because your pastor is merciful, not wanting you to read too many chapters on Saturday evening. But in 1 Corinthians 14, when they didn't have the New Testament Scriptures, a church service would open, and if it was an obedient church, the speakers of tongues would remain silent. And the prophets would speak. And one prophet would come up and stand in this pulpit and address the congregation for maybe four minutes. And it would be direct revelation from God. And all of a sudden, he would reach the end of four minutes and get a glassy-eyed look because he had run out of everything God had given him. And he would sit down and another man would get up because God had just given him a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. And he could get up and run for another five minutes. And at five minutes, he would be interrupted by prophet number three that would say, Brother, please sit down and let me take up where you just left off and help him sit down. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 through 32, because the gift of prophecy was partial. So even this first gift that's going to be listed here, I don't have it, you don't have it, none of us have it. But it was important, because you spoke as the mouthpiece of God. Do you know that it would tend to puff a man up? Oh, wow. Let's not even go there. I'm thankful for this prophecy right here. Read and study. Read and study. What did Paul tell Timothy? Sit around and pray and covet earnestly the best gifts? Timothy, try to be a prophet. Then you won't have to study. Did Paul tell Timothy that? Or did Paul tell Timothy, give thyself wholly to reading? Exhortation and doctrine. Amen. Okay. There's so many. Do you remember Korah? Korah had a gift. What was Korah's gift? It starts with L. It's six letters long. He was a Levite. Thank you, Brother Orville. He was a Levite. And that's what irritated Moses the most. He was a Levite, but what did he want to be? He wanted to be a priest and a leader of the whole nation. He wasn't content with the gift God gave him, and that is what this passage is all about. He that teacheth on teaching. How deep is that to you? Does it bother you a little bit that the Lord would write something so abbreviated? He that teacheth on teaching. Be content with the office God gave, and reach to it, and fulfill it faithfully, and, and keep that office the way that God described it to be kept, but don't reach beyond it. So he starts with prophets and works his way down to showing mercy. And that is the lesson of Romans 12, 3 through 8, that no man, even those gifted and with offices in the church at Rome, should think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. You know what happened to Korah. The Lord buried him alive for not being content with his office as a Levite and wanting to be a priest. Do you remember Isaiah? Did God make Isaiah an, an office? And did God give grace to Isaiah? Did he give him a high office? What was the office? It's four letters. It starts with K. King, Isaiah. What did he want to be for an afternoon? A priest. He wanted to offer incense to God because everything else he had tried in his life had worked because God made him great as a king. But greatness as a king doesn't mean you have the right or the role or should you be involved in the office and work of a priest. And he walked into that temple to offer up incense and the priest withstood him and said, It doth not appertain to thee, O King Isaiah, to offer incense to God and you better get out of here. And to back up their words, leprosy rose right up in his face while he stood there, and he was a leper to the day of his death. 
The Lord is serious about us sticking to our roles and doing them well, right down to you children, honoring your parents. It's a, it's a symptom of the perilous times of the last days that children do not obey their parents, nor do children honor their parents like they once did. God is speaking to you children today to think about whether you obey and honor your parents as thoroughly and as completely as you should, even right down to your eye movements. We don't even mock our parents with our eyes if we stick with the Word of God. We don't speak back to them. We don't say jokes about them. We don't talk about them lightly. The Lord's going to get every one of us before the day's over. But I want you to understand what the Apostle intended to the church at Rome of the apostolic era, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Pride would have been very possible and very common in Rome. It was the capital of the empire. There was a dictator there called a Caesar. There were ranks and there was a senate and there was this and there was that. Where there was a lot of authority because it was the capital and it was, it was the apex of the Roman Empire. But in that church that was at the apex of the empire, their rulers were supposed to be like this. Remembering that they were members of a body and not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. But to think soberly. I enjoy the Holy Spirit's play on words Charlie, right here, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think soberly. Because if you think highly of yourself, you're basically thinking like a drunkard. I love the Lord's play on words here. Thinking soberly is the opposite of thinking highly of yourself. This is a precious use of words. To think highly of yourself means you've allowed your imagination to run wild and you ought to come back to earth and think soberly. To think highly of yourself is to think thoughts that the best men with the greatest gifts never thought. Like Moses and Paul, if you want a couple of examples. The Bible says about Moses, he was the meekest man on earth. Though he had the greatest office. Though he built the house of God. Though he delivered that house of God from Pharaoh to the land, toward the land of Canaan. Consider David's inspired description of men. Let me read this to you. You've heard it before from me. Psalm 62 and verse 9. Surely, this is absolutely a fact, surely men of low degree are vanity. And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Low class men are obviously worthless. High class men who claim they are not worthless are a lie taking both classes of men together and putting them in a balance? Vanity goes down because it's heavier than they are. They're lighter than vanity. And so we don't want to think highly of ourselves and those officers in Rome shouldn't have thought highly of themselves. God had given them a gift. God had placed them in a body. Just as we have different bodily members, as verses 4 and 5 are going to describe, we appreciate all those members and all of them are necessary for our body to perform properly. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. This is the end of verse 3. God himself dealt the gifts and the offices to the official men among the church members in Rome. This is every man which is among you. This isn't every man. This is not common faith. This is not the Christian religion. These are not the doctrines of Christ. This is faith as a gift. This is the measure of a gift. This is the measure of a spiritual gift. 
If you read 1 Corinthians 12 carefully last night, you were in the middle of a stretch of gifts. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, healings and miracles. And right there in the middle was the gift of five-letter word starts with F. Faith. Faith was the basis for every gift. And it's the measure of faith. Because an apostle had faith that would crush anyone else. A prophet had greater faith. It was part of their greater office. And so it's the measure of faith here. When it says here, God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, the every man is the every man under consideration. It's the every man with an apostolic gift or office. And God has dealt to each one of them a different measure of faith. Because it's gifts differing. It's not the same measure. I have heard some incredible things said from Romans 12.3 about every man's been dealt a certain amount of faith. Well, that's found in other places in the New Testament, but it's not found in Romans 12, 3 through 8. God has chosen the poor, rich in faith, James 2, 5, and I do believe it. And in Acts 18, 27, it says they believe through grace so that faith is a gift of God according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but not here. This faith is something else. This faith is the grace given to a man in his office and his gifts to perform in the church, and it's to the measure of that gift. Because that measure only goes so far. A prophet does not reach to an apostle. A teacher does not reach to a prophet. A teacher was someone who had to study in order to teach. An exhorter did not reach to a prophet. An exhorter was telling a congregation what they ought to do. A prophet was telling a congregation possibly what God was going to do in the future. And so these gifts did not reach to each other because they were differing gifts as verse 6 says, having then gifts differing. And so when we come back to verse 3, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, the every man has already been explained as being among them. They're the exceptional men with gifts and offices, made exceptional by God, not that they were exceptional in or of themselves. And they had a measure of faith given to them according to their office. So that, in verse 6, when prophecy is brought up, and the gift of prophecy, and prophets are addressed, the apostle is going to tell them, if you have the gift of prophecy, you make sure that you prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Don't you prophesy beyond what God gave you. Don't, when you run out after four minutes, don't stay up there for 14 minutes and fill out the other 10 with things God hasn't given you. Your ministry is partial. Your ministry is limited. Stick with it and don't go beyond it. Be faithful up to it, to the proportion God gave you, but don't reach for more. It says that in 6, the proportion of faith. Here it's the measure of faith. The amount God has measured to each man, and it differs. Lord, help every hearer to understand the things that take so long to study out, but we only have a few minutes to present them because we want to accomplish the goal of this chapter. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. It's a gift. There's a giver. No man should be puffed up by it. It's his sovereign choice to make the distinctions among men. And as 1 Corinthians 4, 7 puts it, I want you to turn and look at this verse. This is so good for all of us and everything about us. Every role that we have, every gift that we have, everything that you own, every bit of income that you have at your job, every asset that you have, every every point on the IQ scale that you have, every inch on your vertical jump, whatever you want to think about at the moment, but please think of important things, and that leaves out vertical jumps. 
1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? See, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 is about differences. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? See, it was all given as a gift from God. Now, if thou didst receive it, and they did, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Why do you glory and get puffed up about yourself like it was something you worked up? God gave it to you. It's a wonderful verse. Look what it follows. You want to see verse 6 and see if it fits? And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. See, the gifts in the church should just be understood. God gave them. They have limitations. And no one should get puffed up that's in the office. No one should get puffed up about the one that is in the office. The church at Corinth was pitiful. They'd get puffed up about Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Christ. And they had broken the church into four segments because they didn't understand this that we're trying to cover here in Romans 12. The measure of faith is the limit or the parameters of the offices given. Verse 4 is going to use the word offices. The measure of faith. It's called the grace given in 12.6 is the degree of spiritual power in the gift. The measure of faith, called the proportion of faith in 12.6 is the degree of spiritual power in the gift. That is the measure of faith. And the measure differs. It is not common faith. It's not the knowledge of the Christian religion. It is spiritual gifts and an office given to men to use for the benefit of the church. Verse 4. If you wish that I was taking another hour on verse 3, I'm sorry, but you can take that other hour because I've taken 10 hours on verse 3 for your benefit in the outline that will be available in the next 24 hours on our website. I'm not angry at you. I'm just angry at time and the limitations of trying to cover 31,101 verses and do a portion of them in my lifetime. And I love the Word of God, and I love every word of it, and I've studied every word here in this third verse, and I hope that you see it fitting together. Context is my master. I will defy anyone on any aspect of interpretation short of context. Context for all of our speaking and all of our writing dictates what we mean by any individual sentence or word. And so when I look at these six verses, it is all very simple to me that these are these are gifts of the apostolic era, and Paul addresses them first, then he moves quickly on to you, brethren, and he addresses all of us as church members. For instance, when he says in verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another. It's no one among you, it's everyone. It's one, another. But here, these are men among you. There's not all men. These are men with gifts of grace like the Apostle Paul. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, you have arms, legs, nose, ears, eyes, and many members, toes, fingers, but it's one body. You have one body. You are body, soul, and spirit. God addresses you by a name. He's given you a name. You have a last name. You have a first name. You're a Christian. Jesus has died for your body. That is all that first half of the sentence means. I have many points that could be made about that body. They're wonderful points because God has given us a wonderful creation in our human body on how all these different parts work together. For as we have many members in one body, that is the physical body, that is your human body, that is your flesh and bone body. And all members have not the same office. My eyes see, my ears hear, my elbows leverage, and my feet carry me. 
If I did not have feet, the view that my eyes would take in during a lifetime would be very limited indeed. And though my feet stink faster than my eyes stink, my feet are necessary to get my eyes places to see things. My feet are necessary to get my ears places to hear things. And though I might be able to see the Word of God with my eyes, without an elbow to turn the pages of my Scriptures, I would be limited to one page out of my Bible if I didn't have an elbow. And that's all verse 4 is saying. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. They all do different things. But boy, together, isn't our body a wonderful thing? Amen. This fulcrum right here is pretty good. Want to see how fast I can turn pages? How am I doing that? Aren't you impressed? My eyes can just keep reading on every page and I can just keep flipping those pages because we have this body. And so so is the church of Jesus Christ as we come to the fifth verse of this passage. Romans 12.5 So we... Remember as so? Remember our little adverbs as so? As is in verse 4. So is in verse 5. In the very same way that the body has all different kinds of members, but it is one body, and that one body is made into a very efficient, productive, functional whole. W-H-O-L-E. So we, being many, many church members at Rome, many church members in Greenville, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We're all attached, and we're all working together. There are eyes. You know, you make it, I was trying to compare eyes and feet because you may think your eyes are more important than your feet. And we would probably say, if we had to take a vote today, we would say that our eyes are more important than our feet because you could roll me around to see things with my eyes. But they're all necessary to the proper functioning of a body because a man in a wheelchair is not a properly functioning body. And a church in a wheelchair is something we don't want to have. And the church at Rome didn't want to be a church in a wheelchair. Everybody was important. Every office was important. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. We're all attached. We all work together for the good of the body. The feet carry the eyes. The feet carry the ears. The elbows lift things so that the eyes and the ears can participate. And it all works together and it is amazing. It's a wonderful thing. And God chose, back to the usage of words, God chose to compare the church to a body over and over and over through Paul's ministry. And you know if you read 1 Corinthians 12 last night, he detailed about it, about the different parts. The feet cannot say, well, because I'm not the eye, I'm not very important, and I'm not part of the body. Paul Paul mocked them for saying that. The feet are necessary. But the eye can't say we don't have need of the feet either. Because is the body an eye? If the body were just an eye, do you want to try that for a moment? If I were to take my eye out and put it here on the podium, what what can it do? We're all attached. And so so verse 5 teaches us. Having then, verse 6, in the context of church gifts, in the church at Rome, of the apostolic era, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, the us is Paul and the every man that is among you. Us. Paul's including himself in there because he starts out by saying, through the grace given unto me. And then he addresses every man which is among you. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. 
the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, 28 for just a moment, and let's find out where that gift ranked and why Paul would start with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. I'm so thankful for the Lord. I'm so thankful for His Scriptures that lay things out for us and sometimes put them in lists for us that are to be understood numerically. Isn't that wonderful? 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God hath set some in the church. See? Some in the church. Every man among you. Not every man. And it's only some in the church. And God has set some in the church. These are the gifts in this list. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, notice the terminology here. First, second, next, after that. Third, third, after that, miracles. Then, notice the words, then, gifts of healings, helps, governments. Look at those little words. Helps, governments, helps, service, ministering, giving, Showing mercy, deacons, governments, deacons, overseeing a business, being in charge of something, Phoebe, sometimes unofficial gifts. We have so, we have many unofficial gifts in this church that do things that require hours and ability and gifts and experience and circumstances of life to be able to do them. Gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Look, we're down at the bottom. Diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. And so on. We come back to Romans 12 and verse 6. There was a list of gifts. If we go to Ephesians 4.11, we get to add in evangelist and pastor. If we go to other places at Corinth, like 1 Corinthians 12, we add in word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, and discerning of spirits. If we go to... 1 Corinthians 11, we add in supernatural praying. Praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. If we go to Romans 12, we're right here. We have ministry, exhorter, giver, ruler, and shower of mercy. If we go to Acts chapter 2, we have visions and dreams. And so we have 23 quick gifts or offices of the New Testament church of the apostolic era. I have it included in there, taking up serpents because that was a sign, or drinking a deadly poison because that was assigned to the apostles. Or we could have 25, and that is not an exhaustive list. You say, well, what do we have left? Bishop and deacon. You say, well, what makes up the big difference? Two things. Do you know what they are? Number one, the mighty signs and wonders done by the apostles and miracle workers was to confirm the word of living fishermen from Galilee of Nazareth, who in the opinion of the rest of Israel didn't know anything. And so there were mighty signs and wonders done by them to confirm that they were from God. They could raise the dead, drink poison, take up serpents, heal the sick, cast out devils, speak in tongues at any time they wanted to, prophesy, open the Scriptures, have a word of wisdom, understand all mysteries. Well, Paul could. Do you understand? As soon as the apostles had their word confirmed and their ministries confirmed, then they wrote down what they had to give us So the need for mighty signs and wonders, supernatural gifts, went away because the apostles were confirmed. Second, once the Scripture was in hand, then all the revelatory gifts disappeared. We didn't need a prophet to be able to tell us God's will. We had God's will in writing. We didn't need to be exhorted supernaturally. We didn't need supernatural praying because it was here in the Word of God to teach us those things. Pray after this manner. We had in writing. 
We didn't need someone to pray a supernatural prayer. Although we all want to pray supernatural prayers by having the Holy Spirit assisting the words that come out of our mouths and the Holy Spirit praying for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans chapter 12. Those are the two things that while many of those gifts went away. The apostles were confirmed. The Word of God arrived. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Because he says the gift of prophecy was in part. You only got as much as your prophets had in the way of the measure of faith at a church service. Do you know what you have now? The more sure word of prophecy. The entire thing. Do you know that in the 27 books you have and the 269 chapters of the New Testament, you have everything that is able to make the man of God perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Appreciate the Word of God. There were false prophets that shall also be among the people, and some of those false prophets could do miracles. Do you know what kind of discernment you had to have and go search the Scriptures daily? To see who was telling you the truth, now you have it in writing. The whole thing is in writing. And so those gifts were severely reduced. You know, they didn't exist. They didn't exist before the day of Pentecost in any power except, you know, the, to the 12 and to the 70 that Jesus sent out in his ministry. There was a, they were given on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit was poured out in the church and then they were taken away when the apostles fulfilled their ministries. And the time of reformation ended. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, you prophets at the church at Rome, you say, would they have more than one? You would need more than one. If you wanted to have a good church, you had to have more than one prophet because one prophet was so severely limited. When we look at Acts chapter 13, look at how it's worded about the officers there. Acts 13 says this, verse 1, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So they had multiple prophets and teachers because they had partial gifts. And they are described as partial gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And they're called partial gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. When the prophets may speak two or three, when one runs out of everything God gave him, he's supposed to sit down and let another man take over and not try to dominate the service and pretend that he's an apostle that has the last word on everything. And so this is what the instruction in Romans 12 is teaching. In Romans 12, 6, if it's a prophet, you prophets, and I am a prophet, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, the degree and measure of the faith and gift by grace that God gave the prophet. It was only limited. And he should not try to reach beyond it to be an apostle. He should not try to reach beyond it to keep other prophets in their pews. He should only go as far as God gave him and be silent and sit down. Do you know how embarrassing that would be if one man took ten minutes, the next man took ten minutes, and you took two? Somebody would say, well, he watched too much television the past week. No! It was God's measure of faith. It was the proportion of faith. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. There have been things said about these words that are quite discouraging. The proportion of faith. 
They changed the word proportion to analogy. They added article in front of faith, so they have the analogy of the faith. And they teach from that expression in the second half of verse 6 of Romans chapter 12 that we ought to interpret the Bible according to the system of doctrine taught elsewhere in the Bible, according to the analogy of the faith. If you have ever heard the words, the analogy of the faith, you can't get through a systematic theology without reading about it. Do I agree that you shouldn't teach anything out of the Bible that doesn't agree with the rest of the Bible? Absolutely. And where would I go to teach that? Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Because the holy men of God spake as they were moved with the Holy Ghost. There's only one author to the Bible. And so it all has to fit together. That is not taught here. The context tells us that is not being taught here. The context tells us that God gave different gifts and that every man was to be faithful to his gift and not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think by reaching beyond the limit of the gift of grace and the measure of faith that God gave that man, but to preach to that extent and no further. And if people would do that in all of their roles and responsibilities, peace would reign and productivity and functionality would reign in every church and would reign in every family and would reign in society. It's a wonderful lesson. Only as far as God enabled you and called you should you go. If you are a prophet, the Apostle Paul says, along with me, Let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Was Paul's somewhat larger than theirs? Somewhat. I speak as a fool. Hugely. Beyond them. All you got to do is read Ephesians chapter 3 where he describes the gift that God gave him, surpassing all others from the foundation of the world with his understanding of God, including the Gentiles in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul had a gift. Could the apostle heal? Have you read about anyone else in the New Testament that passed out handkerchiefs? Were there handkerchiefs taken from Paul's body that healed people? He he did it all. But he's speaking here and he's addressing prophets. I hope you can understand that. If if you're familiar with... Let's go there. I will take the time. 1 Corinthians 14. I'm I'm not upset except at the clock a little bit. Just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 14, Lord, give them understanding. Give me understanding. Let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that you may exalt us in due time. Let us fill the roles that you've given us and be thankful. And let us see the place of Scripture having replaced so many of these gifts because you had something better for us. We have something better, brethren. 1 Corinthians 14, what what if a prophet was sick this morning? What if three prophets were supposed to speak and one was sick with the flu? Forgive me. We have the Bible. You can all be sick with the flu, or I can be sick like Wednesday evening, and you have the Word of God, the more sure word of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, after dealing with tongue speakers, he takes up prophets. Verse 29, let the prophets, plural, speak two or three, and let the other judge. See, while one's speaking, the others are listening whether they can add something in or not. It was a bizarre kind of church service compared to what we're used to. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. You're up here preaching away. I mean, you're letting it go. It ain't from an outline, brethren. And it isn't from memorization. It is from God the Holy Spirit in you. You are going, and all of a sudden, Mark raises his hand. And according to this verse, I close up and sit down and Mark takes over. 
If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This was not an out-of-control, out-of-body experience. This was something that you had control over. So that when a man raised his hand and said, I have something to add, you could be quiet and sit down. But if you were not submissive and prophesying according to the proportion of your faith and the measure of the faith given to you, you would just go right on over him. I hope that helps you understand a little bit about the gifts. Verse 7, or ministry. The word minister means servant, and any gift or office can be called minister for its serving role. And I'm not going to try to apply this exactly to some specific office of the New Testament church because it's too hard and it defeats the, it distracts us from the lesson of the passage anyway. Apostles were ministers. You should read the number of times Paul refers to himself as a minister of Jesus Christ and a minister of churches. Bishops were ministers. Deacons were ministers because they took care of the daily ministration. They're servants. All the word minister means is servants. But, Ministry was short of prophet because prophet was obviously gift number two, office number two in the church. And this ministry, even if it's a bishop, for the work of the ministry is less than a prophet. So if your, if your gift, if your office in this church at Rome at this time was a minister, and let's make it a bishop, since a bishop is spoken of as a minister so many times in the New Testament, let us wait on our ministering. Was Paul a minister? Was that a chief part of his job? Yes. So he's still including himself in this plural first-person pronoun. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. The word wait means in a context like this, to attend to a business or a duty. And so what he's saying is, if you have been called to be a minister... And see, the point isn't really what minister it was. If you've been called to be a minister, then wait on your ministering and don't try to be a prophet. Wait on your ministering. Fulfill the duty of being a minister rather than trying to prophesy. Do you know what would happen if a minister got jealous of the prophets and raised his hand and jumped up in the pulpit and he wasn't inspired? What kind of vomit could come out of a man's mouth? And everybody is sitting there thinking he must have the gift of prophecy. But you know what the other prophets would be doing? Both hands would be up. <laughs> Get him out of there. Amen. I speak. I hope you understand what I'm... I, I want you to grasp this passage and see that there were dangers in that apostolic period if these gifts did not work properly. If they thought too highly of themselves and they reached beyond the measure of faith that God gave them or the gift of grace that God gave them, trouble would result. But for those that were called to be a minister... I would, I would say that this is a bishop, a pastor teacher. It could be a deacon. Let us wait on our ministering. If it's a deacon, then the ministry is deacon ministering. If it's a bishop, it's bishop ministering. It doesn't alter the point at all. It's you are limited to that kind of service. Wait and fulfill that service. Or he that teacheth on teaching. There's, there's those words. He that teacheth on teaching. We have an ellipsis here. What word is missing from the first half of the verse? Wait. Or he that teacheth, wait on his teaching. Be faithful to your teaching. Don't reach beyond to anything else. If you were made a teacher, let somebody else do the ministering. If they were different, could they be the same office? Easily. Easily, like a pastor and a teacher. Like a bishop being a ruler and a teacher. 
Obey them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. What does that tell you in the office of a bishop? Or the elder as it's described in Hebrews 13.7. Two aspects of his job. Ruling and teaching. Amen. Spoken unto you the word of God. They both go together. And so we could have the, this, the combination here, and it's very interesting to watch what men have done with it in the past. They can get very creative sometimes. The gift of prophecy we're saying is the supernatural gift of being able to give the, the revealed will of God on the spur of the moment in an assembly or ministry. Let us wait in our ministering, whether that's bishop ministering or deacon ministering. I would say it's bishop ministering. Let's wait on that. Let's be faithful to that. Let's do that. Let's not worry about what we don't have. Let's not worry about there being prophets, and we're short of that. Or he that exhorteth, or, to, or let's get that teaching, or he that teacheth, a natural teacher, an ordinary teacher, a teacher that must study, like a Timothy that had to study, not a prophet. If he's been called to be a teacher, he's apt to teach. See, apt to teach does not mean apt to be inspired. No one's apt to be inspired. God can inspire Balaam's transportation. But it's apt to teach. That's a teacher. He's apt to teach. He has a natural gift to teach. A supernatural gift to teach is a prophet when that teaching comes from God or an apostle. So we've got a a natural teacher in the last part of verse 7, and a man that's called to be a natural teacher, he should wait on his teaching. He should be faithful to his teaching and not reach beyond it. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. What else should an exhorter be doing? Listen, do bishops exhort? Do apostles exhort? Do prophets exhort? Can I show you multiple passages for every one of those? Apostles, prophets, and bishops exhorting. Should every church member be able to exhort? Then you should limit. Then they, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and whoever else was exhorting, and especially men limited to the gift of exhortation, or that exhortation being a large part of their gift and their office, should wait on their exhortation. Don't try to reach beyond that. If you're given an opportunity in this church, and I'm making an indirect secondary application, to get in this pulpit and exhort the congregation, make sure that your exhortation is in line with what has been taught by the bishop of the congregation. You're welcome to get in the pulpit. This pulpit is open. That's why we're doing the psalms the way we do them. That's why we open the pulpit up to thanksgivings and praise. That's why you're allowed to exhort. But limit yourself to that and don't go beyond it. Can you imagine someone going beyond and trying to make apostolic injunctions or orders for the New Testament churches beyond Paul? That's why he started out with these words. For I say, through the grace given to me, and everybody knew what that meant, it's more than I've got, is what it meant. And they all submitted to the apostle. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Everyone gives. Every Christian should give. We're going to read throughout the rest of this epistle and other epistles that we all should be giving. But this is exceptional giving. This is giving by an office. This is giving by a gift. This is giving by an assignment. This is giving by a responsibility, by a role, by a position in the church. Were there any that did that that we know of? Deacons gave. Who took from the congregation and then gave to the widows? Deacons did. Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. They were the givers. They were the distributors. And so then we understand what the word simplicity means. When it's just us giving our offerings, 
and it's addressed to the whole church like it is in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. It says the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. Every giver that's giving that kind of a way does it cheerfully. This is different because simplicity means freedom from artifice, deceit or duplicity. It is sincerity and straightforwardness. It is the absence of affectation or artificiality. It is honest, careful, upfront. Dealings with integrity is what the word simplicity means. Let me say it again. Freedom from artifice. That's cunning design to, to enhance your pockets at the cost of the church. Deceit or duplicity. Pretending something and doing something else. That's what the word simplicity means. It's an officer of the church. It's a representative of the church. Now there were deacons that took... The, the Jerusalem church was huge. It was huge. They took all the gifts that were given and they distributed those gifts. They gave those gifts honestly, without deceit, without embezzlement, without padding their pockets for the care of the widows. Then, were there international givers in this sense of the word? Were there men chosen by the apostles? Does 2 Corinthians 8 refer to three of them and one or two of them are named that were assigned to take gifts of money, large gifts, from churches 500 miles away across the Mediterranean Sea and dispense in the churches of Judea? Does 2 Corinthians 8 describe those men whose reputations were known among the churches? For what? The gift of giving and carrying money and doing it with simplicity. So, if you're giving, even indirectly, when we give, or when we are working on behalf of the church, I have sent some of you on trips, whether it be to St. Louis or Michigan or Malaysia or other places that you have gone. Have you done everything honestly? Have you done it with simplicity? Within each role God gives us, child, husband, wife, parent, mother, father, bishop, giver, there's rules. And the rule is with simplicity. A giver shouldn't try to be a prophet, but enough has been said about that that the emphasis is not on trying to be a prophet. He's not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He shouldn't think that he can dip a little bit into the church purse to help himself. He should give with simplicity. That's how I understand Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. This is an official position of the church. Deacon, specific assignment, a phoebe, if it was not an official office, the international givers that are described in 2 Corinthians 8, they're all accountable that since they're they're handling money and since they're distributing money and since they're giving money, they should do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. Do apostles rule? Do prophets rule? Do bishops rule? Do deacons rule? Yes. Pick you out seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost whom we may appoint... I need an O word. Over this business. They ruled. If you said, well, my, my widow didn't get enough. Who made the decision about whether they got enough or not? You or the deacon? They were appointed over that business. And so they ruled. And, the, and whoever, if it's a bishop ruling, he should be diligent. If it's a deacon ruling, he should be diligent in making sure that what he does is fair 
and equitable with everyone involved. If it's a father ruling, if it's a master ruling his business, if you want an indirect application, it should be done with diligence because other people suffer the consequences of you not being diligent or faithful. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Were there gifts in the early church that could be called showing mercy? Every Christian should show mercy, but this is he that showeth mercy, meaning that there were some of the every man that were among them that specialized in showing mercy. Deacons would be showing, would show mercy by taking care of widows in the daily ministration. And if you say to me, you've already used deacons once, I have already said to you that these gifts and offices and functions here can roll up into one, two, or just a few church offices. These are just different aspects of them. But if you have been assigned with showing mercy, then you should show mercy with cheerfulness. Because showing mercy means that you are distributing on behalf of the church goods or a visit to those that may not deserve it, that may have been foolish, that may have been wasteful in their lives, that may be sick, that will be the sorriest members in the church, most likely. And you're showing mercy to them, and the temptation could be to show mercy to them with a haughty attitude, and the apostolic injunction is, show mercy with cheerfulness. You know, every doctor ought to read this passage, because when you're showing mercy, your bedside manner should reflect a little bit of cheerfulness. When you're showing mercy by taking care of all the sorry cases you would have to look at. And do you know who the greatest example of this ever was in the Bible was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you know what he dealt with every day of his life? The sorriest physical bodies and the sorriest people came to him, devils and problems, and he cheerfully healed them all. He that showeth mercy. Deacons show mercy. Bishops show mercy. Assigned parties like Phoebe would show mercy in an unofficial office. Romans chapter 16. Remember what Paul said of Phoebe? She is a servant of the church which is at Sencria. That means she was a minister there, an unofficial minister of that church. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sencria, that ye receive her in the Lord. This is another church, the church at Rome. As becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. Is that some authority? To have the Apostle Paul authorizing a woman to come and get anything that the Roman church could give that she asked for? For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. What's a succorer? A helper. Did we read helps in 1 Corinthians 12? So we have this wide arrangement. What is Romans 12, 3-8 teaching? It is teaching the perfect and holy and good and acceptable will of God. And he starts with the officers of the church that they had better understand not to think of themselves more highly than they ought, not to reach beyond the the office and position or assignment that they had been given, and to remember that they were members of a body and that they should only do their part, that there's an elbow and the elbow should remain an elbow and not try to wear a pair of sunglasses. And there's eyes and there's ears and there's feet and they all have the respective part, but when they fulfill their part, the church profits and the church is functional and the church brings glory to God and every member profits when every member does their part. When members try to reach beyond their part and exaggerate, you know, if the elbow should be lifted up higher than it should be, then the body suffers. 
And when church officers, whether it be a prophet, tries to prophesy beyond the measure of faith and the gift of grace God gave him, the church would be troubled by it. And right down to showing mercy, they shouldn't try to reach up to be a minister or a teacher or a prophet, and they should show their mercy with cheerfulness. So God teaches us here that he has given roles, and and what roles that we're in when we're called, or what roles that we can be given by God's grace, we should fulfill them faithfully so that we reach up to that point. We should not reach beyond to try to fulfill another man's office, and we should do each office according to the rules God gave. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word in Romans 12, 3-8. This is the perfect and acceptable will of God. This is giving your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. Right. If He's chosen a man to be a deacon in the church at Rome, He shouldn't worry about not being an apostle, not being a prophet. He should fulfill that role. And every one of us have roles. And we want today to be our humbling before the Lord that we're fulfilling the roles that He has given us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.